if you study theology, the other side of the quote you're probably more familiar with is without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. And again, if you spent 38 seconds around church world, you would expect the pastor to say that. Well, without knowledge of God, Kevin, you can never know yourself. But actually, Calvin, it's a two-pronged quote, and most theologians miss the other part. Without knowledge of self, there's no knowledge of God. Without knowledge of God, there's no knowledge of self. And I think what's lacking in a lot of people, for sure, inside the church and and definitely outside the church, is that self-awareness. So my business partner, a medical doctor, says the most dangerous thing is, well, we don't know what we don't know. And I find this to be so true. It's what we're blind to that most often takes us down, takes us out. It creeps up on us. In this show, we bring you a message titled, Didn't See It Coming, Overcoming the Seven Greatest Challenges That No One Expects and Everyone Experiences. So it comes from a book by the same title, authored by my guest, Carrie Newhoff. He's a speaker, podcaster, and pastor of one of the largest and most influential churches in Canada. So right off, you're wondering, okay, what are those seven challenges? Well, I'll tell you. I'm going to read them off. Cynicism, compromise, disconnection, irrelevance, pride and narcissism emptiness, burnout. Uh, And of course I got Carrie's personal story that brought him to this message and what he does today. But we got into those challenges. It was really interesting because I look at those and I think, uh, you know, not me, but as we really talked about them, I thought, gosh, I I see some that I'm going to edge towards if I'm not aware, which we also get into. He has 11 warning signs that we're falling towards or into these issues. I was just really intrigued by the message and and our discussion. I mean, nobody sets out to become any of those. Of of course, they just happen over time, like gaining weight. And Carrie just does a masterful job of opening our eyes with a breakdown of needed self-awareness. He does a burnout quiz and just gives guidance on an overall personality audit, in essence, to clarify where we are and where we need to shore ourselves up to guard ourselves against those things. It's just a significant discussion. Uh, before we get started, you can connect with Carrie at didn't see it coming book.com. And of course, you can get the book wherever you get your books normally. Uh, he's also got a podcast, real popular podcast called the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast lead like never before. And his name is spelled C-A-R-E-Y. And the last name too, will will take you a little, um, it's N-I-E-U-W-H-O-F. But you can find that wherever you look for your podcast or wherever you get your podcast. So I'm going to get started with this conversation with Carrie right after I share some great resources with you. Okay, friends, here then I bring you Carrie Newhoff and just this profound message that I think we all will do well to hear. Well, Carrie, it is an absolute honor to have you on the show. I often, I, I always have great guests, but I often have some where there's just been a, a slew of people saying, if you had this guy on, you've got to get this guy on. And so finally, I just couldn't deny having you here. So thanks for being with us. 
Well, it's a privilege. You've got uh, quite a legacy here, and it's an honor to be with you, Kevin. Thank you. Well, I I want to dig into your message. I want to dig into your book, but I do want to know a little bit about the backstory here being about personal development. Uh, just like Zig did, he started so many, if not all of his presentations, telling a little bit about himself being the, you know, the youngest of all these kids and dad died. And, you know, what brought you, what's the backstory on you, just your own upbringing that got you to the trajectory of a lawyer and a pastor and an author and where you are now? Take us back a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting when you're a little kid, I remember wanting to be, a, I think, you know, my mom kept a little scrapbook of of us when we were younger like you know there's my kindergarten report card and some pictures I did and I think in like kindergarten first grade I wanted to be a baseball player or an astronaut like all the little kids did and of course I had no actual skills for baseball or anything but that doesn't stop you and I don't know what it was but when I was eight years old I remember coming home one day and saying to my mom and dad I think I was at scouts or Cubs or whatever it was, uh, I want to be a lawyer. And I don't know where that came from. I, I think it was God. I have no idea. But I wanted to be a lawyer and kind of pursued that dream, but took a really circuitous route there. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I went into the local radio station in this little small town I grew up in. Because a few years earlier, when we had been driving around, you know, you grew up with the radio. And the light went on and I thought, wait, that's an actual person. Like somewhere in Toronto, which is near where I lived, there's an actual human being on the other side of the microphone. And so when I became a teenager, I'm like, I think I want to be that guy. So I walked into the local radio station, said to the receptionist, what does it take to get a job here? And they hired me, which was crazy. They didn't even pay me for three months, but I didn't care. I wanted to be on the radio. Again, I don't know why. I just, I just wanted to do that. So I did it. I had a show in our hometown for a number of years and then ended up working in Toronto at a radio station there for well, probably three years into my early 20s. And then I left that. Uh, also, when I was 18 or nine, and again, I don't know how I got this. I don't remember that this part of the story, but I started being a columnist for the local newspaper. There was a syndicate of like half a dozen just local newspapers in the area I lived in, and I would write political opinion pieces with wow. more comedy satire. Uh, but it was, it was, so I was, by the time I was done high school, I was on my way to law school. That was going to be my destination. I was already a syndicated columnist and I had a radio show. So don't ask me what needs to be. Plus I drove a pickup truck for my dad and his company. So that, that was a good job as well. Uh, but that was sort of my path. Uh, ended up doing undergrad in history, went into law school Best thing to come out of law school was my wife, Tony. Huh. Uh, I was raised in a Christian home. She was first year law. So I was, I was raised in a Christian home, kind of drifted in my late teens, but recommitted my life to Christ in my early 20s. So I entered law school with an active faith, but like that didn't mean I was going into ministry. But between first and second year law, felt a call into ministry, decided to finish law, worked for a year in downtown Toronto, got called to the bar. And then resigned and went into seminary. Yeah. And halfway through seminary, I thought, I, I have no gifts for ministry. So, because I'm, I'm a lawyer, I'm a leader, I'm an entrepreneur, like not your classic, you know, pastoral care shepherd type guy. So I thought, you know, what, what if I'm a disaster in congregational ministry? So we found these three little churches north of Toronto 
that needed a student pastor, which meant you had all the responsibilities, but half the pay of a regular pastor. So I went up there, started with these tiny churches of like uh, average attendance on a Sunday of six, 14, and then the mega church had 23. And uh, those are some of the people I'm still with all these years later. These days, our church is like 1,500 people on a Sunday, plus thousands online, probably three to 4,000 people call our church home. And uh, stepped back as a lead pastor a few years ago. Uh, So I'm now the founding and the teaching pastor. I still teach at our church, but it gives me a little more bandwidth to write books, build into leaders. I do a lot of speaking. I have my own leadership podcast. And then, um, oh yeah, I blog too. So it's just like very eclectic life, but a lot of fun. Yeah. And always had a heart for the business community. Well, and to take me back, you know, just as we look at, of course, this is indicative of everybody I have on the show. That's why they're here is there's that drive. When you talk about early age and looking at, I want to be a lawyer and then see in the studio, I want to do that. Where do you think that came from? If you, as you look back now, where are the threads of what was that motivation that spurred you to do anything besides, you know, watch video games? Not that they had those as much back then, but, you know, right. to squander the time as opposed to that there were things you we wanted had to go Atari, after. man. Yeah, of, yeah. of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really great question. And I would process it like through a theological framework, which would be my worldview and my perspective. I think it's gifting and calling. I don't know where drive comes from. Like, honestly, you know, if a 16 year old said to me, I'm going to, you know, start my own podcast and see what happens. I don't know who goes into radio anymore, but you know, I'd be like, well, good for you, kid. Like, you know, like, like it's a really weird thing, or I'm going to start my own blog at 18 or, you know, writing for newspaper. It would be, it would be unusual. Joe Walsh, uh, one of the musicians in the Eagles, if you've ever seen the Eagles, documentary on Netflix. It's, it's fascinating just from a, from a, a, a human standpoint. And, and Joe, Joe did his share of drugs in, in his day. So he's got a few functioning brain cells left. Like it was hard on him. But I remember he said, as only he could say, he said, when you, cause they asked him the same question, like, what do you think of your time with the Eagles? And he just said, at the time, your life feels like confusion. It feels like all these misdirections. But when you look back on it, it looks like a beautifully written poem. Hmm. And I think there's a lot of sense to that, that, you know, these all seem like left turns, right turns. What are you? Are you a lawyer, a broadcaster, a pastor? Excuse me. But you know, the one thread and, and I had a guy, a, a friend, I don't know whether you know him or not, but Exponential is sort of his event. His name's Todd Wilson. Mm-hmm. He helped me look back on it. And I heard a, a podcast with Peter Thiel or Thiel uh, a few years ago. And they said, look for the thread, which was your question. So you know what unites all those things? Communication. Mm-hmm. Communication, right? So a lawyer, my wife is more the mm-hmm. solicitor. She will sit there and draft a contract all day long. I'll rip the contract up and go into court and argue why it should never be enforced. I mean, that's my personality, right? Uh, My year in law, it was short, but I was in court almost every day. And I love the thrill of like being in the courtroom, not knowing what was going to happen, trying to convince a judge that our side was right. Like that was exciting. My favorite part of preaching, communication, radio, communication, columnist, communication. And now I blog, write, and podcast, guess what that is? Communication. So the one thread, the way that God, I think, has, has gifted me or the calling on my life is to be a communicator. Yeah. 
And so that is the thing that sort of unites all the disparate threads of my life. And even, even my staff have said over the years as our church has grown, your primary form of leadership is communication. I'll just rally the troops, inspire them with some vision, you know, give them some marching orders and then go for it. So it's, it, that is the common theme that I see. And that was my next question. You just answered that as you look through that thread, what do you see? And you talked about gifting and calling and communication. Well, obviously, you know, in this book, didn't see it coming. You are communicating a significant message. You know what, before I get into to, to my, to that question mm-hmm. on, I want to ask you a kind of an overall overarching cultural question. I know part of this came from, you cited your own burnout, uh, Tell tell us about that just to give us a good preface. Yeah, I would say the other thread, honestly, Kevin, would be there's an entrepreneurial gifting wiring that's in there too. So to go back a little bit further, when I was hired at the radio station, I mean, it was a local radio station. It doesn't get really much smaller than the radio station I was at. It was 1200 watts, AM dial. Like, you know, it wasn't very prestigious. And I had the Saturday night shift and the Sunday night shift. So I, I, I was, I'm very motivated, very driven. So even then I would say to my boss, like, what are the ratings for this show? Like, who's listening? And he told me when he got hired, he said, Carrie, there are lines. I'm like, what do you mean lines? Like lines. He goes, no, lines as in not even a statistical meaningful number that you can write down. There's just like a line, not even 50. So basically nobody was listening. And I thought, well, you know what? it's probably because the station's no good. So I, I saw that we, they were playing really bad music and, but they also had a, a library full of records and they were all the records that I was listening to the records. My friends were listening to the records, the radio station that actually had listeners were playing. So on Saturday night, nobody's around, everybody's off. The boss isn't really listening. I started, to, I started just playing whatever I wanted. I broke format Beautiful. and just went into the library and like took the records and started playing them. And then my friends started listening. And within about a year, you know, people found out and some of the staff were mad. Like, why do you get to do this? And I just said to my boss, will you check next time the ratings come out? If we have lines, we'll talk. And there were no lines. In fact, it went on within a year to become the highest rated show of in that station, period. I ended up creating a chart. So there's that like entrepreneurial thread that has been throughout my life. When I came to those three tiny little churches, by the grace of God, we started to grow overnight. You know, then I went on, we reimagined ourselves 11 years ago, became Connexus Church, planted a church all over again launched a blog, a podcast. So I'm a doer. And I think a lot of your listeners would be self-motivated, hard-driving people, whatever that happens to be, whether that's a side hustle business you've got or project you're working on or, you know, business that you want to launch. We're all that way. And when I was in my 30s, so I started in ministry because it took so long to like finish seminary and law. I was about 30 when I started ministry. And after a decade of going hard, our church had grown from like 40 to about six, seven, 800. And my bad mathematical formula was more people equals more hours. Mm -hmm. And because it was in the church, it felt like more hours equals more faithfulness. Mm -hmm. Like, how can I say no to God? If I really believe that there's a God, Mm -hmm. am I not just going to work more? Like, how do I? And and that, that, you know, that was bad, like leadership 101, I should have been, I should have figured out that that was a really bad formula, but I didn't. 
And I was working through a few other issues in my life, just in my heart, stuff God was working on, you know, relational issues and emotional issues and nothing, nothing headline worthy, but it just led me to the point where on the outside, everything was great. Our church had never been bigger. We were the fastest growing in the country in our denomination. We were one of the largest in the country in our denomination. I had actually just in May of 2006, given a keynote talk in, tr- in front of 2,500 leaders in Atlanta. It was the biggest talk I had ever given to date. So I was like on the absolute top of my game. And when I stepped off, I flew home to Toronto. When I stepped off, uh, stepped off the plane, it's like I fell off a cliff. And for years, people had told me, Carrie, if you're not careful, you're going to burn out. You're going to burn out. You're going to burn out. And I said, no, I'm not going to burn out, you know. And sure enough, I went into burnout. And... Uh, it was like falling off a cliff. Mm. You're reaching, you know, all the things that would keep you out of burnout when you're not burning out. Like, okay, I'm going to have a good night's sleep. I'll take a vacation. Um, I just need some space. No, none of that stuff worked. So yeah, I, I hit burnout a decade into my active leadership and ministry. Okay. So as we, I'm just going to list off and I'm, I'm going to ask you for kind of an overarching statement. When you look at, these are literally the chapters of the books, folks, I'm going to read that I didn't see it coming. Cynicism, compromise, disconnection, irrelevance, pride and narcissism, emptiness, burnout. When you look at those, if I'm looking, this go back to your business entrepreneurial aspect, your, mm-hmm. ele- your elevator pitch in, in essence of when you, when we look at this and look at this message, one of my first thoughts that I wanted to hear from you is Culturally, when you look at what do you see at the root? Why is this message needed? Why is the problem growing? What do you cite as that root thing that's accelerating this? Yeah, it's interesting because there is a thread that runs through all seven issues because they seem disparate. But what, I, what I'd seen is two things. Number one, these are the issues that everyone experiences and no one seems to expect. The mm-hmm. emptiness of success. And I started to see that when I was in my mid-20s in law in Toronto, when I worked for that year in downtown Toronto, I was surrounded by very successful lawyers. It was the Canadian equivalent of Wall Street. So these guys, like if they're, you know, in today's dollars, they were probably making, pushing seven figures, like high six, low seven. So they're making close to a million dollars a year or more. Uh, They had the house, they had the car and everything. And yet I could not find a happy lawyer in downtown Toronto. And everybody was kind of miserable. And I thought, okay, pay attention, take good notes. And I thought that ministry would solve that. I thought, okay, I'm going to go into ministry. Everything's going to be awesome. And it was in ministry that I really grew cynical. And then I started to notice the dropout rate in leadership. And I think there's two forms of dropout. Number one, you know, former lawyers, former pastors, former bankers, former executives. There's that. It's like, I just couldn't handle it anymore. I got out. But then there's a lot of people and and they're more like corpses. It's like, no, I'm still in leadership either because they need the paycheck or they just haven't quit or whatever. And, And the... The joy of life is gone, but the function of life continues. Hmm. And if you really sat down with them over a meal, you would discover that they are kind of burned out and they are feeling empty despite their success. And they've grown very cynical. And maybe they haven't had like a disqualifying moral compromise, but compromise is growing in their life. And maybe they were pretty cutting edge in their 20s, but you know now they're 45 and the kids are nipping at their heels 
And so those are the issues. And, 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 you know, I meet a lot of leaders in the business space and in the church space that when I really sat down and then I looked at my own life, I said, you know what, these are the things we don't talk about enough. These are the things that like, okay, you don't like your marriage. You don't like your family. You don't like your partners. You don't like your job. Chances are one or some of these seven are underneath that. So let's put some light on them and let's try to figure out if, okay, if you've grown cynical, if you've become a bit irrelevant, if you're proud, if, if you're feeling empty and if you're compromising, like your character isn't where it should be, is that fixable? Yeah, absolutely it is. And do you have to live this way? The answer is no, you don't have to live that way. So that's why I wrote the book. And thanks to these sponsors for bringing us today's show. Goodness. Okay, you what and I know there's a, there's so many points I could pull out, but I'm just this is my show. I get to pull out what I want to. And and the one that jumped <laughs> out to me just out of a curiosity was some content, some real estate that you gave to narcissism, uh, growing in our culture. And so I, uh, I, I love words. I love to dig into them. And one of the definitions I got was extreme selfishness with a grandiose view of one's talents and a craving for admiration as characterizing a personality type. And my first thought was, Oh, smokes. That's, that's social media, uh, to a great degree. <laughs> Would you cite that as some of the vehicle that may be uh, accelerating this aspect of narcissism in the culture? Because when you say that word, I think everybody thinks of somebody, you know, some celebrity, some, somebody on TV yeah, somebody or something. Else, somebody else. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and if the word keeps coming up. And so when you put it in the book here, I'm thinking, wait a minute, is that, are we all growing towards that, uh, towards that, uh, towards narcissism? Well, social media is a really interesting take on it because, I mean, it's only a decade old. Like, for real, social media is not that old. And so we have a chance to express us. And I think it's, it's, it's a common thing to say, you know what, it's social media that's doing it. But here's my take on And I might change my take on technology. You know, we are its parent, but we're also its child. So we're inventing these things, but we don't really know what they're doing to us yet. And that, that's fair game. But my take on technology and social media is... It isn't good or evil in and of itself. It's kind of neutral, like paper. Like, is paper good or is paper evil? Well, I don't know. Paper, you can write the most beautiful poem known to humanity, the most beautiful music you can print on paper, or you can write death threats, hate mail, or print porn. Like, what, you know, like, is paper bad? I don't know. And I think social media and technology are the same way, that they're inherently, they're not good or evil. They just reveal and amplify what's already there. So somebody, if you had narcissistic tendencies a decade ago, well, Instagram makes it a lot easier for you to make it all about you all the time. So that was in you, but social media revealed it and social media amplified it. So I think, I think that is the case. And, and I believe it's a neutral technology. It can be used for good and evil. And it's like somebody said a long time ago, the divide in America is one that doesn't just split the country, it splits every human heart. Mm. And I think that's true, that, that we see that. So, so yes, I think social media, but narcissism goes back to narcissists, of course, in ancient Rome. And, you know, this is a problem, a guy staring at his reflection, you know, until he dies. And so this has been a human problem for a long time. Now, what's interesting is in business and also in ministry. So, uh, if you look at, there have been studies, and you'll see different stats on this, but like there's some studies that would suggest that fully 30% of CEOs and a similar number of pastors 
fit the textbook definition of narcissists. Hmm. People who are self-assessed or, or self, um, uh, self-obsessed, who, who have a, 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 an overly optimistic view of their skill and ability and who really don't think of other people at all. Now, depending on how you define pride, where I go in that chapter is to say, if you're a narcissist, you know, go get some help. Go check yourself into whatever clinic you need to go into. Talk to somebody who's, who will tell you the truth and deal with it. Because in my experience, uh, pride shows up another way in most leaders' life. So I define pride, and, and you, know, you can argue with this definition, but I would say pride is simply an obsession with self. That's it right? That fits narcissism. It's an obsession. Oh my goodness. All you ever think about is you. But I know way more people and way more leaders who are insecure than narcissistic. Mm-hmm. And insecurity can also fuel pride because guess what insecure people do? Insecure people are obsessed with themselves. How do I look? How do other people think I look? How does this picture make me look? Um, oh my goodness. You know, you're, you're a really talented podcaster, I don't know whether I want to partner with you because you might be better than I am. And so that would give you, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not in with Kevin. And so, you know, you think about how many leaders, I mean, this is true in law firms, it's true in banking, it's true in, in startups, where if you're an insecure leader, it gets really difficult for you to be around people that you think are more gifted or more talented than you. And that's insecurity, but it's, it's really a form of pride, that pride is at the root of so many, so many sins and so many problems. And so when I look at my life, I have narcissistic days for sure. I think we all have a few, but way more of my struggle with pride comes out of insecurity uh, than it does out of narcissism. Well, so when you look at this, yeah, I'm going to list them off again. Cynicism, compromise, disconnection, mm-hmm. irrelevance, pride and narcissism, emptiness, burnout, when you look at those and we talk about some of these root issues, you know, from a, again, that 10,000 foot view, I find myself wanting to ask, you know, what do you feel like is a, I mean, you have lots of, you know, in each of those chapters, chapters, you have ways to deal with it, ways to attack this thing. But yeah. if I say overall, how do you, how would you, how would you do this from a solution standpoint and being a pastor and a Christian guy, you know, there's an expectation you say, well, you know, just come to God. Yet, yeah. <laughs> I, okay, I know. Yet, okay. I hear you. So, so here's here's what got me. This is not even the last chapter of the book. This is after the last chapter of the book. You call it the conclusion, and you lead with a quote from John Calvin that just got my attention like that. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. So for disclosure, I took that, I found a little, uh, not a meme, but uh, like a poster of it. And I posted it on Facebook this morning and said, Hey folks, just give me your thoughts. And the thoughts are coming in. Uh, and, uh, obviously a controversial statement, but one being in personal development, being a human myself, who's trying to better myself, I'm enamored with that perspective. Cause you didn't come to just the Christianese, you know, answer you're saying, no, you got to yeah. go in and you talk about being self-aware. Unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, it, it is fascinating because it's a two-pronged quote. Uh, the one, if, if you're on the theological side or study this at all, I mean, this is open to everybody, but if you, if you study theology, the other side of the quote you're probably more familiar with is without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. And again, if you spent 
38 seconds around church world, you would expect the pastor to say that. Well, without knowledge of God, Kevin, you can never know yourself. But actually, Calvin, it's a two-pronged quote, and most theologians miss the other part. Without knowledge of self, there's no knowledge of God. Without knowledge of God, there's no knowledge of self. And I think what's lacking in a lot of people, for sure, inside the church and and definitely outside the church, is that self-awareness. Now, Daniel Goleman years ago did us all a gift when he told us that self-awareness is at the heart of emotional intelligence. And we all know that as employers, leaders, bosses, you know, you don't want to hire emotionally unintelligent people. But I think what's lacking in all of those and what really had to grow in me in my 30s and my 40s was that self-awareness. Because you know what? When I was a single guy, I thought I was awesome. Like I never had fights because I didn't fight with myself. I was perfect every day, right? You know, maybe I said something I shouldn't say. You confess that or whatever. But then you get married and you share the same 1,200 square foot apartment with another human being. And she points out that apparently I'm not as perfect as I think I am in my mind. And and that's, you know, I got a, a good friend of mine, Jeff Henderson in Atlanta, and he, he asks this haunting question that some days I wish I had never heard. And the question is, what's it like to be on the other side of me? Hmm. And that is a great, that is a self, that is what Calvin is saying. Hey, without knowledge of self, you can't really know God. And that's a great question for bosses to ask employers, for spouses to ask their mate, for parents to ask their grown children, for friends to ask each other, like, what is the impact? What's it like to be on the other side of me? And then to really listen. And what I've learned is that as my self-awareness grows, I am, I am far more sensitive to my impact on other people, to, to even how, how I believe God uses human life. But, but that self-awareness is missing. Like, think about the worst boss you ever had. Self-aware, not self-aware. I can promise you that terrible boss was not self-aware. Um, think, think about some of the meanest people on the planet. Self-aware, not self-aware. Think about the religious hypocrites you hate. Self-aware, not self-aware. Not self-aware. And so I've got to have the humility to look in. I have, the, I have to have the humility, and I'm still working on it, yeah. to say, Kevin, what was that meeting like for you? Like, are you discouraged? Did that, did that hurt you? Because sometimes we have to have hard conversations, but that doesn't mean I have to be a jerk about it. And as my self-awareness has grown, it's helped me figure out, what is this emptiness that comes on the other side of success? Like, where does that come from? Why have I grown so cynical? Um, how does compromise start? Because sure, I haven't had an affair, but you know, am I morally compromised in any area of my life? Even something that wouldn't get me fired, could that grow to be something bigger? You know, pride, all those issues start to, you start to see them in a, in a different light. And you know what we're great at, Kevin, without self-awareness? I'll point out all the problems in your life. Mm-hmm. You, you got a half hour? I'm going to tell you everything that's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. The self-aware person goes, uh-oh, I think this better start with me. I think it better start in the mirror. I think I have some work to do. Uh, I, I think there's some things I have to address and I have to confess and, and that maybe I better ask you, you know, Hey, is, is that okay? What I said, or did that come across as harsh or what I did there? Do you think that was hundred percent ethical, like above board? Or do you think that was questionable? Like when you start asking those questions and I think that's where Calvin was driving, mm-hmm. uh, man, good stuff happens for everybody. Well, it does. It, you know, and it got me at first, my, 
you know, as I dove into the book here and I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, okay, this is, this is, this is great information. This is rel- uh, revelatory information. But then as I read that and as I went back to the chapters, I'm feeling like it's a, it's a need for a personal audit. Uh, like a workbook needs to associate itself with the book to go through. And just like that, what self-aware people know that others don't. And you list out four things. And folks, this, this again, this is at the end of the book. And what's interesting to me that you put it at the end I'm of the book. I'm glad you read to the end. I mean, <laughs> you that, that's a bonus, Kevin. Well, you could have led with, the, with, with that as well or make that a book in and of itself. And you took a handful of pages to do it. And you talk about, you know, one, their impact on Again, folks, this is what self-aware people know that others don't. Their impact on others, their weaknesses, their strengths, and their limits. I, in the business world, in the personal development world, I'm very familiar with number two and number three, uh, weaknesses and strengths, not so much with my impact on others and my limits, especially. And I think for a lot of, as you said, uh, well, you didn't say it, but you know, success oriented people, high achieving people, we, we don't tend to want to talk about limits. So again, we've got those four things. One thing to do an audit from them, but even going back to the strengths and weaknesses, which I'm comfortable or I'm familiar with. It's one thing to know them, to speak them, but another thing to orient our lives around these. And yet that's what I feel like you're calling us to with self-awareness. It's knowing these things and orienting ourselves around them in, to be self-aware. Otherwise we're not. And that's, that's, that's heavy. It is really heavy. And you know, if you talk to 35 year old Carrie, he would have told you that he has no limits because God has no limits, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, or maybe maybe you don't have a particular faith and you're just like, no, you know what? Like I got where well, there's no limits, man. Sky's the limit. What do you want to do? It's it's you know, the Internet's the Wild West. Uh, we're going to take over the world. Great. But the reality is you do have limits. And I'm not God and I do have limits. And it's so ironic because when I was going and, and this is to anybody who's in startup world, uh, anybody who's just at that point where, you know, there are no more hours in the day, but there's still work. Uh, that was how I spent my 30s. Hmm. And you will never win at that. As Ken Blanchard says, even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. Like you just, you get to that place of exhaustion pretty quickly. And what I had to come to terms with Kevin on the other side of my burnout was, oh my goodness, I have limits. And I mean, I, I hit a brick wall of limits. Like if you've ever burned out and a lot of your listeners have, or have someone close to them who has, what defines true burnout for me is a loss of control. It's like, I was in control. I was tired, but I was in control. I went to bed, you know, took a vacation. I'm okay. But when I was burning out, like I had no control. I was pushing all the buttons that were supposed to make me better and nothing was making me better. And so on the other side, I started to ask myself the question, okay, what are my limits? Because clearly, I, you know, the rules never apply to you until they do. And clearly, there are limits on, on human behavior, which should not have shocked me as someone who's read about Sabbath and limits and rest all of my life and ignored them. Um, so what are my limits? And I realized I'm not good at everything. I really am a communicator. When I try to manage, I can write about management, but like I'm not as good a manager as I am a communicator. Uh, my leadership happens through it. So I narrowed my lanes significantly, which allows you to empower a team. So, you know, what's so ironic is I'm working fewer hours than I was when I was in my 30s. Our church is three times the size. Uh, I'm also, I've written four books in the last decade since I burned out. 
Uh, I have a healthier and better marriage and relationship with my kids. Uh, and it's not perfect by any, so I'm not trying to give, you know, the, 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 you know, overly unrealistic impression of what I am, but I've also got a podcast and I blog regularly and I'm taking better care of myself. I'm down 10 or 15 pounds. I exercise. So it's not perfect every day, but my goodness, what a difference. Like when you realize, okay, I'm not doing this. I'm closing these doors. I have limits. And another thing, Arianna Huffington is on and on about it. And I'm so glad she is, but she's become a sleep evangelist. So have I. I mean, before this podcast, we're doing this mid-afternoon Eastern time. I took a nap, 20-minute nap. Uh, The other day, I was on the West Coast. I was in uh, San Diego last week and then Houston and Charlotte and flew through D.C. I had multiple time zones. And so I slept nine hours Sunday night. And then I got back to my church and I preached. So, you know, I was speaking across the country and I'll tell you, you you, you know, you, you can't do that forever. You talk to a lot of people in business they're exhausted all the time. And guess what? That's where the moral compromise starts. That's when you're up late one night and you end up doing something that you regret. So I just, I'm just like, I have limits. And the more I observe them, the better my life seems to go. The more I, and you can, you know, you can cheat for a season. Yeah. We all got to hustle. It's a launch. You're launching a product, whatever you're, it's a big season. But the problem with a lot of us in leadership who are driven, who are successful people is we say it's a season. Nobody in your family believes that. And if it really was a season, it would have a beginning or an end. And you talk to driven people, their seasons have no end. So guess what? It's not a season. It's your life. And that's what I had to come to terms with. And that, that for me, has become a lot of self-awareness. And self-awareness is this. All the things smart people were telling me in my 30s, I started listening to in my 40s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's what it boils down to for me. Absolutely. I, thank you for pointing out the sleep one. Yeah, that is one that I know we're hearing more about. Thank goodness, because we're only as good, at least long-term, as you said, as our recovery. Um, you know... And I'm going to speak to the audience here, you know, looking at the chapters of the book and as Carrie dives into cynicism, compromise, disconnection, irrelevance, pride and narcissism, emptiness and burnout. Uh, you do such a masterful job of going through there, explaining those. I think all of us, you know, anybody has to resonate with each aspect to some degree. And then you do talk about how to recognize it, understand it, and how to deal with it. So folks, there's your charge. Just go get the book because we would be on here for hours to really do justice to it. But you also then talk about 11 important warning signs. And I'm not going to ask you to go through and hit each of those, but I do want you to give us at least an umbrella of knowing that because when I look at those things, I can resonate with those, with those, but do, do I know the warning signs as one of my, as my business partner talks about the most dangerous thing is we don't know what we don't know. And so when yeah. you talk about warning signs, signs, that's what I, I want to tell, tell me, tell me, cause those I'm going to, I'm going to check in with right away or not. Yeah. The warning signs for burnout and, and these, these are not like from the Mayo Clinic, but they are things that I've experienced and, and the things that I've seen that seem to resonate now with the thousands of leaders who've mm-hmm. been through my little burnout quiz. Uh, but one was loss of passion. You know, I'm, I'm just going to make the assumption again, because the kind of people who listen to this show, uh, you're driven, like mm-hmm. you're passionate, idealistic, hopeful. And prior to my burnout and during my burnout, my passion was just fading. Mm-hmm. And I still believed like intellectually I was there, but emotionally I was spent. That, so one is your passion fades. Another sign would be 
uh, emotionally, you're just, you're in a flat place. So you get news that somebody's pregnant and they're having a baby and you know, intellectually, okay, I should be happy right now, but like, you don't feel anything. You're just flat as a pancake or somebody dies or you find out that a friend has a cancer diagnosis. And again, your brain says, be sad, but you don't feel it. You're just flat. And then the other sounds, the next thing I'm going to share sounds contradictory, but it's not. So you're not feeling the highs or the lows. You know, you're supposed to rejoice when other people rejoice and mourn when other people mourn. You can't do that. But what you find yourself is that your reactions also get very disproportionate. So your eight-year-old is supposed to empty the dishwasher and she doesn't. And like you have a nuclear meltdown. It was a three out of 10 offense. Like, okay, you know what? You can't do X until you empty the dishwasher. But like you just about lost it on her. And that's not good. That's disproportionate. It's like a three should be a three. If There are probably some situations in life you should have a nuclear meltdown over, yeah. but this isn't one of them. And you've got a hair trigger temper or, you know, you're teaching your 16-year-old to drive and you screamed off the road. You know, you screamed her right off the road and she got out of the car and you're like, whoa, what is that? That's a, that's a really bad sign. Here's a real simple one, Kevin. You don't laugh anymore. Mm. Man, when I was burning out, it started in May of 2006, and I remember listening to the radio, driving somewhere, probably in September, and somebody said something, and it just it made me laugh out loud, like literally laugh out loud, and I caught myself, and I thought, I don't think I've laughed out loud for three months, mm. and that's like your sense of humor is gone. You saw a movie. You know, food doesn't taste good anymore. So those are some signs that you really, and, and, and I'll give you one more before. And I've, I've, I've got a quiz that people can take. If you're interested, I can give you the URL, uh, the website. But one more is sleep and time off no longer refuel you. Mm. So that can be a real sign of burnout. So, okay, I got eight hours last night, but I feel worse now than I did before I went to bed. So I'm going to get another eight hours, another eight hours. And you're like, uh-oh this isn't working. Like I took three weeks off my summer burnout in July and I thought, okay, I'm going to get better. And by the end of the three weeks, I was worth mm. worse. That's when I had to go to my board and say, guys, I don't know what's wrong, but like I'm in trouble here. And, uh, you know, by the grace of God, I recovered. Uh, it took me about a year to get back to almost normal and then three to five to find a new normal. But if people are interested, uh, you can take the burnout quiz at uh, didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. Didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. Scroll halfway down the page. You'll see a cynicism quiz and a burnout quiz. So you can take those for free. Thank you. I, I will do that when we're done here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll wrap it up so I can do that sucker. I, we, I, you know, again, when you look at the chapters of the book, I, I mentioned a minute ago in regards to the self-awareness, doing an audit. Uh, I honestly thought I want to do that. And my first thought was I want to do it with my wife just to go through there and read about cynicism and read your explanation and go, where, where are we? I want to rate myself again, kind of like a quiz overall. Where am I on compromise? Because I started reading through them. I thought I, I relate to all of them on some level. Now, if we take the, you know, the scale in essence, which my, my business partner, the doc always says, we're all on the spectrum. You take any pathology and we're on the spectrum somewhere, but we're either way over here and it's not too bad or we're way over here and it's tragic. It's cataclysmic. I want to do well, that on all these areas. Uh, well, Kevin, you know, and this is, this is the interesting thing is we often think of cynicism as binary, 
right? You're either cynical or you're not. Yeah. But what I've discovered for a lot of leaders is it's a creep. So if you like, like a, like a gradual, a slow fade into it. So if you look at 20 year old me, I was probably 95% optimist, 5% pessimist. If you met 39 year old me, I was 95% cynic mm. and 5% optimist. And so what happened was it just slid over time. And the same can happen with compromise, right? So you look at who you think you should be. And again, this operates independent of faith, whatever you believe. But you have a view of, you know what? If I'm going to be a decent, moral human being that's contributing society, I should be X. But we have these big boxes where we're like, well, I haven't cheated on my wife and I'm, I'm okay with the IRS and I'm not involved with organized crime. So therefore, I haven't morally compromised. Wait a minute. It's way more subtle than that. And, you know, the people who end up in an affair, the people who end up stealing money from the company, it usually didn't start with, I'm going to go and take, you know, $3 million out of this account and put it in mine. It started with a paperclip or it started with doing something when nobody really noticed and you thought, well, that wasn't so bad. And you gradually work yourself into bigger and bigger space. So where are you? And can you stop yourself from, from doing that before you really jeopardize your life or everything you built or your family or your company or your future or whatever that is. And so it's looking for those little signs. Well, so on this, on looking at these signs and on, I feel like I've spent a lot of time on recognizing the problem on, on bringing it out. Obviously the book has been written. You did this, you communicated with this for a message of hope of how to get out of this, how to get well, how to, uh, on solutions. And so I would ask you to end us here on, uh, on that aspect. There is, there is hope. Um, tell us, tell us the hope that we have at the end of this. Can I give you two? Please. Uh, cause we talked about burnout and cynicism a bit. So yeah. you're right. The, the book provides sort of a meta overview of how to get yourself out of a cynical compromise, burned out place. Uh, but then a little hack, a little, a little, you know, habit that can really help. So I think the antidote to cynicism is hope. So, you know, if you look at cynics, they've lost hope. That's what happens. So I encourage you to reclaim hope. I do that from a faith perspective, although you don't have to be, you know, have a faith to read the book. The book was written to a broader audience. I think it makes the most sense from a faith perspective, but you know, wherever you get your hope from, go get your hope from. Um, But for me, the hack is curiosity. I noticed this correlation that the cynical are never curious and the curious are never cynical. And I've found as I have, you know, I cling to the hope that I believe I see in the gospel of Christ. But if I'm being really curious in my life, like I'm asking you questions and I'm open because cynics know everything. They're like, ah, Kevin, I'll tell you how that ends. Blah, 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 blah. You know, if I'm not that guy and I'm like, oh, really, Kevin, well, tell me more and help me understand. And I'd love to know more. Or you're just curious about like, why is the sky blue? Or, um, how come stuff sticks to the earth or why are children so curious? You know, if you get really curious about things, you will do a much better job staving off um, cynicism. And then finally for burnout, I mean, tell somebody you gotta, you gotta go get help. It could be a good counselor. It could be a doctor. It could be a combination of all that. Um, But the hack that I've learned to stay out of burnout and to get out of burnout was I had to find a new normal. Normal got me burned out. So if you're, if you're showing half the signs, some of the signs, all the signs of burnout, guess what? 
normal got you there. And when you're in the pain of burnout, pardon me, <coughs> when you're in the pain of burnout, it's really difficult because basically you just want to get back to normal. Mm. So terrible. But what I had the presence of mind to realize over time is, oh, wait a minute, normal got me burned out. So I need a new normal. And long story short, my new normal is defined by this simple phrase, live in a way today that will help you thrive tomorrow. So I have to live in a way today that will help me thrive. Well, and that's a great lead into, uh, I'll tease everybody with our, our, our next show or two from this one. We'll be going through Carrie's habits, uh, daily habits, and then we'll, we'll dig into those. Uh, thank you so much. The message, oh, you're welcome. I get my voice at the end. No, it's, it's all right. Not living it away today that will help that, me thrive. That was, tomorrow. that was God saying that's enough for them to digest. They need to go Preacher, get the book. Didn't see it coming. Uh, again, I, I feel like it wasn't just information for me. It's equipping it's solutions. And yeah, I'm really eager literally to do an audit of the self-awareness aspect and then just the pieces of cynicism burnout, because I know I'm, again, I'm on the spectrum somewhere. Where am I? So I can get a, uh, a measurement and then know where to go forward. So uh, again, thank you for bringing this message to us and sharing it with the audience. We all need it. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Kevin. Well, there you go, friends. This is just a show. I think it's worth getting paper and pen out and doing some introspection. Uh, and again, you know, get the book and study through it is the best way to do it. And again, the book is called Didn't See It Coming, Overcoming the Seven Greatest Challenges That No One Expects and Everyone Experiences. You can get it wherever you buy books, but then also at didn'tseeitcomingbook.com, where you can also connect with all Carrie has to offer. And you can check out his podcast, the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, Lead Like Never Before. And it's always a gift to our guests and us when you leave a review in iTunes for The Ziggler Show and mention this show specifically and what you got out of it. Okay, coming up next in show 644, I just wanted to visit one more time our crucibles. In show 639, we talked with Dr. James Kelly about harnessing our crucible, in essence, our trials, in essence, for gain instead of a handicap. And I wanted to hear from our listeners, real issues. So I posted this question on Facebook. Because I experienced and endured blank, I am now able to blank that I otherwise would not be so capable of. Goodness, as always, just in-depth responses. Uh, people you know, share things from career and business, challenges, failures, whatever, to personal things, really, uh, really in-depth, vulnerable things there. But what they got out of them now, what value they got. It's not that there's not still regrets and hurts and scars, but that there's redemption and really opportunity in having endured those things. So just a, a great one I think is relevant for all of us. Nobody has not had some failings, some things that were hard uh, that do not really give us a you know, superpower in essence, uh, an ability we wouldn't have had otherwise. So till then, folks, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together.